0: Welcome to SpaceX, the podcast where we explore the holistic, human-centered, and experience-driven economy. In every episode, we're going to explore different aspects of the employee and human experience. Join me, Ben Witter, for regular updates, insights, and ideas that can help accelerate our development and growth within the experience economy.
1: What I am hoping is that leaders and employees alike are going to use this crisis as a moment of reflection and really think about the old ways of working that need not to be there when we're back to work in whatever way so i think this is an amazing opportunity to really redesign work or the way we do things with more thoughtfulness but also making sure that there is space for curiosity that's where i see the opportunity
0: Welcome to the Space Hex podcast. In this edition, uh, we're honored and delighted to have with us a Harvard Business School professor and author of Rebel Talent, Francesco Gino. Is that right? Hi, Ben. (laughs) Did I pronounce your name correctly? Yeah. Okay, good. Uh, How are you? you okay? Yeah, uh,
1: things are great here. Thank you for having me.
0: Now, it's great to uh, have you on the show and really interested in and there's so many topics we could do a one-day podcast and we would still be talking I think. But I suppose the first question we have for you really is about your immediate reactions to the the current COVID-19 crisis and, and the impact and some of the observations you have about the way it's impacting the the experience of work right now.
1: It's a crisis that I'm hoping is not going to get wasted. I've been in a lot of conversations with many different leaders and I started thinking of them as in two buckets, if you will, uh, for the type of experience that they create for their employees. And the first bucket is leaders who are rightly so very worried about the today and what it is that I need to do in order to keep my business running and alive. But Mm. leaders who have that mindset seems to go too quickly to thinking of their employees as a cost. And so they are the type of leaders who decided to do layoffs uh, quite quickly. And then there is the second category of leaders who instead seem to be thinking about their businesses quite differently. And they say, the best resource that I have to allow for the company to survive and actually potentially even thrive in thinking about how we redesign the way we work are leaders who are investing in their employees in fact one example that comes to mind is a set of stores uh, a pizza chain they're called Mm n percent pizza And what's interesting is that right before anybody else did it, they came out at the beginning of the crisis and they invested in their people. So they started paying them more or giving them all sorts of benefits to help them through the crisis. And these are the type of leaders who are keeping in mind the long term and we always say that culture is important, and these are the leaders who are really staying true to their words and leveraging the car, the culture, really, and their employees to come out of the crisis, possibly even stronger than before the crisis.
0: Yeah, it's a, it's a really challenging space for employees right now. But employers, sometimes they get caught in the headlights of, you know, which way do we fall? Which way do we do we react Mm -hmm. do we really support our employees or or actually is it is a case of minimize the risk and exposure to the business i mean how do they get lost in that how do they navigate that path it's interesting that again
1: i think it's keeping the focus on the short term rather than the longer term and so Mm. if you are looking carefully at in which ways can I cut cost, I can see why you start looking at your uh, people, your employees, and they're probably a big cost on your balance sheets. And so you start making layoff. But what I think leaders do and go there quickly, too quickly, they should be thinking a little bit more broadly. Uh, So there have been leaders, for instance, who said, okay, given how the business is going, Some of the people that we have can't do their job as they used to, but let's give them the opportunity to expand or go into other parts or functions of the organizations to help out. And so they went to their people and talked to them very openly about the crisis and asked for their help. And again, I think that in the longer term, those are the firms that are going to fare better because now everyone is looking at people who are getting uh, fired, losing their jobs. But those are the people that in a few months from now are gonna have a lot of choices to make uh, in terms of the organizations that they wanna join. And I think they're gonna choose based on the type of leadership that they've seen in these moments of crisis.
0: Yeah, and there's clearly a big drive around you know safety, security, mm-hmm. building trust with employees in the workforce. Making people people feel confident in returning to the workplace. I saw yep. an article that you, that you uh, I think you co-wrote with a colleague on the Ferrari experience.
1: Mm-hmm. Could you
0: tell us a little bit about about that case and and what they were doing to to help the return to work, I suppose.
1: Yeah, what I thought was interesting about this particular organization is that right in February or actually late January, they were looking at the rest of the world and in particular, they were looking at China and started thinking very carefully about the what if. What if this crisis was to reach Italy and how is it that we would react? And so from the start, they put together a task force that worked with the experts to try to understand how is it that they wanted to react as an organization and what it is that they needed to do to make sure that their people were safe. And again, this is an organization that value uh, the people who work there. In fact, that they make a big deal about the fact that the culture is really centered around them. And so making sure that they understood the employees' experience and they created a safe path was incredibly important. And so they did end up closing operations for a while, but in rethinking about the reopening and staying uh, true to the guidelines for the government, they thought about the best way that they could do so uh, and protect their employees. And so not only they had a lot of testing done on them, but the testing was also available for their families. They also had uh, procedures in place If you as an employee ended up um, basically having the virus and so they had apartments not too far away from the manufacturing plant that people could use at the expense of the company uh, to do their quarantine or to be taken care of with a doctor also available to them. So it's really thinking through the details of the employee experience at the time of crisis. And so I was very impressed by all the steps that they took in terms of thinking carefully about how do we make sure that we create a workplace that people feel safe coming back to.
0: Yeah, and I I suppose there's so many companies that that are not doing that right now. So, you know, brands that do, they're going to stand out, they're going to differentiate themselves. And actually, they're going to take going to maybe generate some really positive returns once once we're through this crisis.
1: Exactly. Mm -hmm. And and I think that opening up the conversations and actually asking the employees about their thoughts in a potential Mm -hmm. return is important. And again, there are all sorts of businesses. Ferrari is interesting because they do have manufacturing plants. But I've also talked to leaders in other contexts where the work is more uh, creative. So... Mm -hmm. Imagine things like consulting or PR agencies and the type of conversations that I've had are conversations that really lead to the question of what is the purpose of going into the office? And they end up being very deep conversations because you realize that sometimes leaders have, I would call them all ways of thinking in terms of thinking that if you're not in the office and I can't see you. I don't know for sure if you're actually doing work that is relevant for the organization. Yeah. And I think we need to change that type of thinking.
0: See, this, this leads me down a path where on the positive note, you could say, well, it's great. Some businesses have very strong human-centered leaders and they're putting in place measures and, and support mechanisms to help people uh, you know, express themselves and express some of the frustrations and, and fix some of the things that are going wrong. But then on the other side of that, you may have uh, a knee-jerk reaction from a corporate headquarters saying, okay, we're going to track and monitor every single thing an employee does because we don't trust them to work at home within the context of our, of our operations. I mean, wh- what do you think about that? Because <laughs> it's, it's a tricky one to navigate. You understand why some, some companies are doing it. But then on the other side, it's, it doesn't seem very humane.
1: That's exactly right. And again, when I've been part of those conversations to try to help leaders think through them, when those type of questions were brought up, I started talking about ways in which we really need to think carefully about how do we build trust? Mm -hmm. How is it that we go from a type of leadership that is very controlling to the type of leadership that is empowering? Uh, because you can only empower if you really trust that your employees are going to do, uh, to basically do their work uh, to try to uh, be good to the organization in addition to feel productive themselves. And so I usually use a lot of examples that come out of. Strange context. So, for example, I often refer to a case study that I've wrote on a leader in the military. And what was interesting about that particular leader is that he went into a context that was highly bureaucratic, very hierarchical, where the culture is all about, don't rock the boat. And he said, look, if I really want to make sure that my group and my squadron is ready for combat, I need to do things differently. I do need to empower them. So it's a great example of going from controlling to empowering and staying true to the world. And at the very core of it is that he trusted his people.
0: Yeah, the, the funny thing about the military, I, re- <clears throat> I remember working with a captain in the military, and you know, you have a when you think about the military, you think about command and control, you mm-hmm. think about that type of leadership style. But what I observe from from looking at the way he operated, it was more of a, you know, there was something more about serving the team rather than serving himself. Yeah. And it, it sounds funny to say that about the military, but it came through very, very strongly. I mean, are we seeing a shift in leadership styles because of this crisis? Because, you know, managers and leaders are putting themselves in, in new territories here.
1: I hope so. And I think that the leaders (laughs) who are going to thrive better are the ones that do end up trusting their people and empowering them. When I teach about leadership, I often ask executives to think about a very deep question, which is a very simple one, but I think it tells a lot about their ways of thinking about the work that they do and the way they lead. And I say, do you fundamentally believe that people are good or bad? And I really don't mean angelic versus devilish, but the Mm -hmm. images of a leader who fundamentally believes that When he's not there, when she's not there over people's shoulders, employees are going to do their work committed to the mission the organization is after and do it as well as they can. Or the leader who believes that fundamentally people are bad is the person who's going to think that when you're not there seeing them in their office, fundamentally they're going to take advantage of you. And I really push on these fundamental beliefs because they trigger all sorts of consequences. The way you motivate people, the way you check in with them is completely different. The way you lead them is completely different. And so I've been in the business, if you will, of trying to help leaders come from the understanding that we need to trust people and create the conditions for them to do the job that they set up to do. And that with trust comes uh, a different relationship and a different interactions and more willingness on their side uh, to push ahead in the work that they do. But it's very difficult for some leaders to think that way. But I'm hoping that those who are going to thrive out of this crisis are those who have that type of mindset.
0: Yeah, absolutely. I remember working in actually higher education and I went to see a a senior leader, and I said, you know, what's your leadership style? How do you lead your your team? And he looked at me like I had uh, three heads. <laughs> <laughs> and he, I always remember this because I think it's just beautiful uh, because he said, leadership? Hmm, it's not my field. <laughs> <laughs>
1: wow <laughs> tells and you a I, lot I,
0: I, yeah it does tell you a lot but I mean I, I kind of respected him because he was he, he freely admitted he was he was kind of out of his depth when it came to leadership uh, but he was he was absolutely excellent in his field uh, mm-hmm. but he he just he created a really strong distinction between his field his high performance and then the performance of his team how do we overcome that
1: I think that for those type of leaders they need to see the costs of having that type of mindset and so again when I have the chance of having discussions with them I usually refer to case studies of even toxic leadership that I have written or studied to just convince them that is not the right way to go and mm. similarly is making them aware of the fact that if we lead differently First of all, in a sense, the job is much easier, but it's an investment that pays off. I often use the ideas of, from a recent book that I've wrote, Rebel Talent, to get to that because rebel, lead, rebel leadership is all about uh, creating the conditions for others to thrive in such a way that the job for them is not a source of frustration, but is a source of joy. Uh, you're probably very familiar with the data that, is global data that all sorts of organizations have collected it, all sorts of scholars have collected it on engagement. And it's striking. Mm -hmm. Like a good way of summarizing it is that for most people, work sucks. And yet we spend a lot of hours (laughs) in our job. And so I think that there is a real opportunity there for leaders to create opportunities for others to approach their work in a way that they feel is joyful rather than dreadful.
0: Yeah. And and just linking into your book, Rebel Talent, I mean, it's a fantastic book. But, you know, the, the central concept is that, you know, we have rebels within our businesses, and we should really start to look at them in a different light. I mean, how would you kind of describe it, really?
1: Yeah, so that's a good way of thinking through what the book was trying to say, that we think of rebels uh, in the business as those people, whether it's colleague leaders, were just incredibly annoying. We call them troublemakers. Sometimes we call them jerks or show-offs. And we think of them as not good people to have around. They're destructive. And yes, those type of people exist in organizations, but the one I met that I call effective rebels are people who actually are quite constructive in what they're doing. They don't accept the status quo, but they push things forward in a way that is really positive for not only themselves, but for the organization also.
0: And in in terms of, so with an employee experience, we talk an awful lot about co-creation. So it, it's absolutely vital to co-create, to, to generate ideas and solutions with your employees rather than for them. How does, you know, would an organization full of rebels be a, a really productive thing? <laughs> I mean, how do, you, how do you manage that co-creation process with a rebel?
1: So usually when I talk about these ideas, the question that I receive is, what is that magical percentage of rebels that I need to have in my business in order to be effective? And my answer is always the same, and it is 100%. And the reason why I'm saying that is that constructive rebelliousness gets you to better performance in team, in the organization. It gets you to more innovation, uh, more agile ways of working, uh, faster change. But it gets you there because of the engagement that we were talking about earlier. When you have rebels in your business, the type of rebels that I talk about, they experience joy out of the work that they do and their joy is contagious. And so when you have engagement in your workforce, the outcomes are just really good ones to embrace. So 100% is my answer.
0: (laughs) That's good, I like it. I'm thinking about you know taking it to the extreme. So we're seeing the rise of employee activism when mm-hmm. when things are not going right within the employee experience, even in some of the world's best workplaces, uh, they're seeing um, spikes in employee activism and whistleblowers and, and various corporate rebellions.
1: You, you remind me actually of the fact that not all rebels are good ones. You can take it too far. <laughs> but but no. the reason why I, off, I talk about different rebel talents in the book, I talk about novelty, I talk about curiosity, perspective, mm-hmm. authenticity and diversity. There is something important that combination. So when I've seen rebels taking things too far where their um, willingness and desire to innovate and change things became arrogance is because some of these ingredients went missing. And it's usually perspective, which what allows you to engage in interaction and conversations, adding constructively rather than being a distractor. But I just mm. want to point out that it is in fact the case that you can take things too far. And the same thing is true for, for rebels.
0: Yeah, and I, I suppose it's, it's bouncing that... You know, tolerance of things that could be better, but mm-hmm. also challenging the the status quo. And what examples have you seen of people really challenging the status quo as as a, as a kind of rab, rebel talent?
1: There are many uh, from all sorts of organizations. One that is very inspiring to me is the story of an Italian chef. His mm. name is Chef Massimo Bottura, and he opened a restaurant in 1995 called Osteria Francescana. And what's interesting about his story is that he went to a context, traditional Italian dishes, and decided to reinvent them. So he came up with very innovative ways of thinking and cooking these dishes. And if you know anything about Italians, you probably know that two things are true. First, we cherish our old ways, especially when it comes to recipes that have been passed on for centuries. And second, we have lots of rules when it comes to cooking. We might not have lots of rules when it comes to driving, but definitely lots of rules when it comes to cooking from the way you pair a certain type of pasta with certain type of sauces. And he went exactly to that context and started asking a lot of questions. Why is it that we cook the dish this way? Maybe it made sense 20 years ago, but not today. And his story is fascinating because tradition-bound Italians were totally upset, not happy that he created the restaurant, but he persisted. And his restaurant is now not only a three Michelin star restaurant, but in 2016 it became the restaurant, the best restaurant in the world. And so what may have appeared a risky move, rebelling against beloved recipes shared across generation really had made him a star. Mm
0: -hmm. Have you this is an off the cuff question? Mm -hmm. Have you ever rebelled in your career?
1: Absolutely. One of, the, <laughs> one of the things that this entire project and journey really taught me is it opened my eyes to ways in which I reinforced the status quo. I hmm. was not approaching life and work with the curiosity one of the organizations that I studied quite in detail for this project was Pirate Ships in the 16th Century. And they were fascinating for two main reasons. One is at a time when it was about 200 years before slavery ended in the United States, they were the most diverse organization on the planet. So just for that, I think they get a lot of points rather than getting people on the ship just because of their uh, race or gender. they They were not thinking about that. They were thinking about the scale the commitment to the ship mission, but second, they were organized in a really interesting way. The crew was at the power to choose the captain, and the crew could also remove the captain if the captain was not behaving well towards the crew. And mm. when I learned that, it really made me reflect a lot about my own leadership uh, in the work that I do, or even in my uh, being a parent, because. The way the ship was organized, I think, led the captain to ask a very simple question, which was, am I the captain that my crew would choose as his leader today? And when I think about that question, I think about whether I'm the type of leader or parent or spouse who really thinks carefully about this rebel talent. Whether when my, one of my children asks a question, do I answer with a question or do I give them an answer? And answering with a question is a better way of answering because it keeps curiosity alive. So I have embraced the rebel life or the rebel journey, really, since I am still learning how to be an effective rebel. <laughs>
0: A lifelong process of rebellion, eh?
1: Exactly, exactly. I began my study of constructive rebellion really by focusing on rule breaking in the workplace. But what I've learned by doing a lot of the research and studying a lot of context and businesses is that it's a way of thinking that can really enrich every aspect of our life. And so uh, for me, living like a rebel is a matter of trying out little things. So I can tell you about how I showed up in executive education classes with the red sneakers on. (laughs) But Uh it's also a much broader commitment to exploring ways of being in the world that may at first feel wrong, uh, but they can be so constructive and so good for us.
0: That's really insightful. Well, thank you very much for for joining us. Um, it's been it's been really interesting to to get some of your views and insights from a rebellious career, which is great. <laughs> exactly. <yeah. laughs> the final thing to finish on, I suppose, is um, you know during this COVID nineteen, we're being challenged, you know, on all fronts to to change something. I mean, what was, what what are we creating? You know, what type of organization are we creating? or should we create after this crisis has passed?
1: What I am hoping is that leaders and employees alike are going to use this crisis as a moment of reflection and really think about the old ways of working that need not to be there when we're back to work in whatever way. So I think this is an amazing opportunity to really redesign work or the way we do things with more thoughtfulness, but also making sure that there is space for curiosity. That's where I see the opportunity.
0: Excellent. That's not a bad place to be at all. (laughs) Thank you very much. Well, (laughs) well, it's been great to have you on the podcast and uh, I wish you well and and safety and, and all good things. Uh, but thank you, Francesca Gino, for joining us.
1: Such a pleasure, Ben. Great conversation.
0: Cheers. Let's do it again sometime.
1: Absolutely.
0: <laughs> we'll do a one-day podcast, the first in history next time. Uh,
1: exactly. We'll we'll talk in a few months and see what actually turned out to be uh, affected. <laughs> yeah.
0: That could be a really fun or really sad conversation, but let's let's uh, put that one in, in the calendar. <laughs> exactly. I'm gonna keep my All optimism. Right. <laughs> Great. Thank you, Francesca. And talk to you. Bye.